The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Thank you, Ben. It's good to be with you. I've known of this congregation for many, many, many years. I have my sister here, my wife here, some other relatives here, and some other friends from Texas here. I won't tell you who they are because they'll decide if they want to be related to me or not after the service is over and so we'll do that it's really good you know if you have background in the tribe of the churches of Christ and not everybody here does I know but if you do and you talk more than five minutes you know what happens you either know somebody you're related to somebody or you wish you weren't I mean that that's the way it goes and so I'm delighted to be here this morning and I won't take but about 74 minutes it won't take long and uh, we'll go from there. It's July 4th, and we tend to emphasize freedom and the declaration of independence. But I propose to you this morning that what we gathered about today and what we've done already in this worship is not about the declaration of independence, but the declaration of dependence. It is dependence upon God. It is dependence upon Christ, the Holy Spirit. It's dependence upon the life that we've been called to in Jesus Christ. So I'd like to pause for just a moment and ask God to pour out in me what Ben's already said, the gift of preaching. Shall we pray? Oh, Lord, may we be totally dependent upon you, and it is easier said than done. And we know our own struggles, and we know our own sins. We know our own doubts and our fears and the realities that we face every day in our lives. We know the world is broken. We know the world is divided, and we feel it in our own soul, sometimes in the dark night of our own soul. And I pray today, Father, that you would pour out on me the gift of preaching, that we would be a generous people, and that we would be called to bless because we've been blessed. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you or your phones with you or your iPads with you, however you access your Bible, if you'd be turning to Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12 this morning. The generous life is what I'd like to call this. I love this series, Practices of Love, Spiritual Disciplines for the Life of the World. I like that phrase, the life of the world. And so instead of talking about giving, since you're $30,000 plus during the year of the COVID, uh, pandemic, which praise God for you, and that's not unusual. About 95% of the churches I've been in and during the pandemic have said, our giving has increased, our people have showed up, we've, we've helped people who didn't have jobs, we've, we've helped our own members who are struggling with health issues. We have been there financially for people during the, this uh, pandemic year, and that's been incredible. But I want to broaden it just from giving to think about what does it mean to live the generous life? Now, we all know this. By the grace of God, we've been blessed. Can I get an amen about that? I mean, we have been blessed by the grace of God. I mean, the gift of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. We have been incredibly blessed. But here's the thing. 
it is easier to say that we've been blessed than it is to bless. Because we have all these things going in our heart and soul and our judgments about people and our experiences with people and our situations in life that we go, hey, I want to bless, but, you know, I've known him a long time, and I guarantee you he's where he is because of his own choices. So I'll let somebody else bless him. And I've known her forever, and she's been a basket case ever since I've known her, and I am not going to bless her anymore. Somebody else can bless her. You say, now nobody in here does that. You're a liar, and the truth is not in you. <laughs> That's just all there is to that. We're blessed to bless. It's easier said than done. We, we know it sounds simple. We know it sounds simple, but it isn't simple because, because something is simple does not mean it's what? Easy. Because something as simple does not mean it's easy. Love your enemies. Clear. Not easy. Do good to those that hate you and despitefully use you. Clear. Not easy. It sounds simple, straightforward, no mistake about it, but it is a lifetime of learning. And one of the reasons it's difficult to live this is because we are bombarded by algorithms of consumption. Let me say that real slowly. We have assumptions about consumption. That's good preacher stuff, Ben, in case you didn't know. You don't do that a lot, but you need to repent, all right? We are, we are bombarded by the algorithms of consumption. My wife and I were talking one night. You know, honey, we, we, we've never been to Hawaii. I'd like, we'd like to go. We've been married almost 41 years. Let's, I'd like to go to Hawaii sometime. She said, okay, that, yeah, I would too. So we, we were looking, you know, just our phones were passive. Alexa was supposedly passive. Within 20 minutes, guess what showed up on our iPhone? Flights to Hawaii, the best price you've ever seen in your life. Places to go in Hawaii on our iPhones. Alexa was listening. The algorithms are designed to, to bring you in, to consume. And then there were clothes in a few minutes that, here's some nice Hawaiian shirts you could take on your Hawaiian trip. And on and on. And on. It, it's so much a part of our life that we are bombarded by the algorithms of consumption. I knew a lady once, and she never owned a cell phone and didn't want one of the blankety-blank things. Ever. She never owned a home. She never had a new car. She didn't have a winter coat growing up in Oklahoma until her adult daughter bought her one. She never had any of those things. She was joyful. There was always extra chicken to cook to have somebody in. There was always people that are welcomed. Her joy was her family. Her joy was her children. Her joy was her grandchildren. Her joy was helping friends, and she had lots of. Her joy was cooking meals and taking it where she worked at Tinker Air Force Base. My mother is who I'm talking about. Raised both of us as a single parent in a small little frame house with no insulation in the walls. What did I learn from my mother? that you can have joy and you can be generous if you don't have anything. Can I get an amen to that? I mean, you can do that in your life. You can lead a generous life. I ha always had clothes to wear. I always had food in my stomach. I always had joy in my life. People and lots of friends and people who were in our homes consistently. In our home. And our home was simple. I never heard my mother apologize for it. I never heard her complain about it. 
she would just go. She would charge her groceries at the local Piggly Wiggly. Anybody remember Piggly Wiggly? The rest of you cannot go to heaven, all right? <laughs> Do you remember Piggly Wiggly? And, and my mother is a small town in Oklahoma, and she would just go, and she would just, the old phrase, rob Peter to pay Paul. She, she didn't make ends meet some weeks, and she would charge her groceries. And if somebody was coming over, like a guest preacher on a Sunday holding a meeting or something, my mother would go, send me across and say, well, tell the guy at the store, just put it on a ticket. I'll pay him on payday. I grew up like that, folks. Every house I've lived in since I was married, is nicer than my mother ever lived in. And what did I learn from my mama? Joy. What did I learn from my mom? Friends matter. What did I learn from my mother? You can give when you don't think you can give, and you can always be generous with your time, with your energy, with your food, with your care. Now, my mother wasn't perfect. I could use some phrases this morning that I would have to repent of if I said them publicly. She had her faults, she had her idiosyncrasies, she had her judgments, she had her opinions. But the bottom line is, the bottom line is, I learned the generous life from a mother who raised two children, single from the time I was 11 years of age on, paid my first interest fee, it's all she had, $125 to go to Oklahoma Christian University. Now, I'm being very personal about this because I want to pull you in to realize something. You can take all the teachings of the New Testament on stewardship or you go through the whole Bible. Abraham was a rich man, but he had faith in God, okay? You, you can take all the teachings. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man and bought the burial plot for Jesus. This is not about you not being rich or wealthy, this is about your perspective of what it means to be a gen lead the generous life. So, in Luke chapter 12, he had been listening for a while from 12.1. This man had listened to Jesus as he crowds gathered. He heard Jesus say, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. He heard Jesus say that whatever you say in secret will be revealed in the light. In, in the dark will be revealed the light. He heard Jesus say, I tell you, friends, verse 4, do not fear those who kill the body but can do nothing more, but I warn you to fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. He heard Jesus tell them that. In verse 8, he heard Jesus say, everyone who acknowledges me. No, he heard Jesus tell the crowd, everyone who acknowledges me. This guy's been listening a long time. He heard about the Son of Man he heard about angels. He heard about rulers. And don't fear those. And don't worry about how to defend yourselves. The Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. This man had been listening for quite a while. And the only thing that he was consumed with is, Hey, teacher, 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 listen to me. I want to tell you something. No, teacher, here's the question. Here, can you tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me? What? Jesus has been telling, Luke makes it clear. Jesus has been telling, Luke makes it clear. This guy now says, hey, Jesus, would you tell, would you tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me? Sounds like a shadows of Jacob and Esau, doesn't it? Sound like something with the prodigal son in Luke 15, doesn't it? You see, Luke deals with 
resources and stewardship more than any other gospel writer. Luke, wealth, generosity, stewardship is a theme in Luke. It's a theme in Scripture. Whether it's Abraham, whether it's Solomon, even Job talks about riches that he totally lost. All through Scripture, there's warnings in Isaiah. There's warnings in Psalm 49, right after the one Leah read this morning. is a whole psalm about be careful, the rich and the poor both die. So you live your life in light of death. And then on and on and on, the story of Zacchaeus, the story of the rich young ruler. The generous life, this guy did not get. Chapter 13, verse 1 Someone in the crowd, this guy's been listening. Someone in the crowd said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be, it says, judge or arbitrator over you? Think of the word, a better word would be, You're setting me up to divide you and your brother. I'm not interested in dividing you. I'm not the great divider. I'm the great reconciler. Judge, arbiter. Who set me up to that? Let me tell you what's going on here. Greed is going on here. And so he says, here's the principle. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. We know that. It's simple, but it's not easy in the algorithms of life. Then he told him a parable. Then he told them a parable. In the parables of Jesus, in the parables of Jesus, virtually all, all of them involve some aspect of, of stewardship. Now, I define stewardship. We say, oh, we're going to do a lesson on stewardship. Oh, no, it's about giving. Stewardship is how, is, the word is household management, how you manage your own home. And so stewardship is more than just about giving. Stewardship, I define it as total life management for the sake of others to the glory of God. And I think I've got a good witness on that all the way through the Gospel of Luke and all the teachings of Jesus. So consider some of these things. If it's total life management to the glory of God, virtually every parable of Jesus has some aspect of stewardship. The parable of the, the pearl of great price, the treasure, has to do with action for the sake of the kingdom. The parable of the talents, risk. You take risk in your talents for the, in light of the reign of God. The sheep and the goats, it's misuse of our resources in light of human need. The good Samaritan is meeting immediate needs, being prepared to do that. Uh, the unjust steward is uh, being a very shrewd in your use of resources in light of what? In light of the world that is to come. The parables pull us in. All the parables of Jesus pull us in. And we make judgment on those characters as we look in the mirror ourselves. In the year 1627, Rembrandt painted this picture. He has a whole series of pictures using biblical parables. And this is the one on the rich fool. Now notice in the 17th century, you see the glasses, you see the, 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 the hat that the man's wearing, the kind of clothes he's wearing. But you've got to look really close. He's examining one of his coins that he has in his possession. 
And look around. You see papers and ledgers and, and all things that implying that this guy's got stacks and stacks of ledgers and accounts that he's keeping up with because he is a rich fool. That's Rembrandt's painting from 1627. Here's what I like to call the rest of this parable. Confessions of a stingy person. Confessions of a stingy person. Let's read the text. Let the text speak. He told them this parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, confession. He's speaking to himself. What should I do? For I have no place to store all my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger barns. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, the very essence of who I am, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. His formula for life is the more I have, the more enjoyment I have. Now, why do I call it the confessions? Because I'd like to imagine people having a conversation with Jesus before they die. Now, I've been in some hospital rooms where that's happened. I've stood at the grave of over five, I've done over 500 funerals in 43 years. And there have been times that I stood as a loved one tears flowing down their face with all kinds of regrets of things they didn't say or relationships that were broken and now it's too late. I've gone back to graves with people who were mad and angry at their loved one that had been buried two or three months and I urged them to get that out. They said, what do I do? How do I get that out? I said, let's go visit the grave. And you just say what you need to say. Yeah, but that's, yeah, you just do it. I'll be right there with you. I've done it. It's hard. It's visceral. It's gut-wrenching. It's helpful. But here's the thing. What if this person, this, this man that lived his life, what if he'd had a conversation with Jesus before he died? Bible doesn't say that, doesn't record that. I'm going beyond the text. What, what would that have been like? Lord, I realize now that all the barns that I built, I realize now that all the moronic, one of the words for fool, one of the, all the moronic things that I invested in to give me enjoyment, I am lonely and apart. I have no one all I have is barns full of stuff, and I'm dying, Lord. Lord, I want to confess, if I had it to do over, here's what I would do. But we don't know if that story would have happened or not. The text doesn't have anything to say about that. But I'd like for you to think about, if you and Jesus were having a conversation about your life, what would that conversation be like before you die? What have you invested your life in that will outlive you? Because we know the formula. Stuff doesn't make you happy, right? We know it. It's, it's easy to say. But I like my new shoes, and I like my new stuff. 
I mean, it is just incredibly, we have this insatiable desire and appetite. If we could just be at this point in life, if we could just be here, if I could just have this job, if I have this much money, and if I could just travel and do this much, and at the end of the day, you're left by yourself to struggle with your own dark night of the soul, as St. John said. Soul, you have ample goods and laid up for many years, but God said... You fool. Now, there's four words in the New Testament for fool. One is the word moron we get, moronic. This is not that word. This word is the most extreme word. And it has to do with this person in mind and soul and spirit. Everything about him was in a stupor. Stupor because of the way he invested his life in himself in other words Jesus could say your wealth has put you in a stupor and therefore you are go ahead and say it stupid now if you have children here I'm sorry I use that word you're supposed to use that word in church children's ministers always get on to me when I say stupid in church so I won't say stupid 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 I'll get it all right it's over but but here's the thing that's exactly what Jesus is saying. You stupid person. You fool. Tonight, your very life, your very soul, the essence of who you are will be demanded from you because you've invested in everything except what really matters. So what would the confessions of a stingy person be? Try the rich young ruler. What would this confession be like? Lord, I made a decision. I, I wouldn't give. And I've lived the rest of my life since you said that. Go ahead, fill in the blank. What would it be like for these people that we have all these negative examples of how they held back? Or the Pharisees, Luke calls them. Some of the Pharisees were lovers of money, Luke chapter 14 or 16, I think. I want to get you thinking this morning about the generous life. How generous are you? Time, talent, treasure, whatever you have. Whatever you have. So what's the so what this morning? The so what for me is, there's three of them. You have to have three to be a really good preacher. You know that. Even though Jesus just had one sometimes. Life does not consent, consist of the abundance of your possessions. That's their Jesus. So the first one I would say is focus on your sense, not your dollars. S-E-N-S-E. -S -E. Not C-E-N-T-S it's not the dollars that you should focus on it's the sense that you have in your life of what it means to be ruled by God and be a generous person because you have received generosity you are generous in whatever way that can happen in your stage of life the second thing I would encourage you to think about is it's not about your wealth but it's about how you share your health and I use health in the sense of wholeness that it's not just when I was baptized at age 11 into Christ I had no clue to involve my pocketbook 
I had no clue it involved my body and how I take care of my body. I had no clue at how I should treat other people. At age 11, I was just baptized because I was supposed to be baptized, and I believed in Christ in order to go to heaven, and I thought, there it is. It took me a long time to realize that what he's after is for me to use some good sense, and it's total health, not just my wealth, as if I have any. It's total health. It's, it's a robust, fully orbed, however you want to say it, approach to life, that every aspect of life for me is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so when you're baptized into Christ, it's not just get to heaven, now we're going to just wait and invest in what I want to, make sure I have securities over here, make sure I have this over here, and make sure I'm comfortable over here. Oh, no, everything is lived to the glory of God. And then lastly, the third thing I would say out of this text is this. In an age when in the United States the average percentage of is, how do I say it, 2.7%. I, I read all kinds of stats. You can do anything with stats you want to. I know that. If you're a statistician, you can prove that to me through stats. But here's the reality. Of all, of all religious evangel evangelical churches in the United States, most church members give 2.7% of their income. Now, you've exceeded that. Surely you have here at the Springs in the, this year. But the reality is we're 50, for the first time in six decades, less than 50% of people in America go to church. First time in six decades, we're below 50%. And there's a disconnection between give me Jesus, but I don't need church. And yes, a lot of us have been hurt by religious people and religious experiences, and I've done some of that myself, and I'm not proud of it. But here's the reality. You remember the little children's thing? Leah was pointing it. Help me here. Which it's, it's this one. Here's the church, and here's the, help me, steeple. Open it up, and there's the people. The New Testament teaches there is a correlation between the steeple and the people. There's a correlation between. And so when you're giving to this congregation, you're giving out of generosity because you've been blessed in order to bless others in ways you may not even imagine. You may not even imagine. But ultimately, it's not just about the steeple of this place, even though there's a steeple down the street but not here, all right? It's about what? The people. So here it is, church, this morning. As you consider this discipline of generosity, the bottom line is this. The generous life is summed up is, if you've been blessed, then you are to what? Bless. May the Lord bless you richly with the generous life that you're called to lead.